And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Frommer. And I'm Pauline Frommer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And that's a conversation you can get in on. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you have a question for us, the number of the email address is FromerTravelShow at Yahoo.com. But we have other ways of talking to our listeners and readers, mostly through our website, Fromers.com, where you'll find all of our guidebooks, you'll find great travel information, you'll find all of the latest news that might affect your next vacation and more. And if you want to get a quick glance at what is on Fromers.com, we urge you to follow us on social media. Just look for the word Fromers, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S, on Instagram, on Pinterest, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Now, Pauline, virtually all Americans at some point of their lives stays in a hotel. And increasingly, they are charged a so-called resort fee for every night of their stay, a resort fee added to the charge for their rooms at that hotel. Now, increasingly, the resort fee is charged even at hotels that through no stretch of the imagination could ever be called resorts. And even when they are resorts, the resort fee is charged even if the hotel guest has made no use whatsoever of any of the facilities in that hotel that are normally found in resorts. But recently, public officials, important public officials, have launched a campaign to abolish resort fees. And while their success in that effort is not yet guaranteed, nevertheless, a battle royal has broken out about so-called resort fees. The Attorney General of the District of Columbia has launched a bitter war against the Marriott chain of hotels. Of all people, Marriott, one of the most reputable companies in all the world of hotels, and the Attorney General of Nebraska has launched a lawsuit against Hilton Hotels. Both of those famous hotel chains are accused of using resort fees deceptively as a form of deceptive practice. It, it is amazing that the resort fees should be an instrument that is used nowadays not simply by small little independent hotels, but by the most famous hotel chains in all of America. As you can imagine... Both Marriott Hotels and the Hilton Hotel chain are fighting back furiously and using some arguments that are directly contradicted. I, I want to say that very politely. They are using arguments that are sometimes contradicted by other persons. One of them argues that resort fees are announced to the public right in the first moments of making a hotel reservation over the phone. They claim that the person who takes your hmm. your call 
uh, tells you that there's going to be a reform. But nobody well, books over the phone anymore. Well, but even if you do, <laughs> my, my own experience is completely contradictory to that huh. claim. Okay. I have been charged resort fees that were never once mentioned mm. by the telephone reservationist when I first made the booking, but uh, are, were charged to me and announced at the very last minute. Right, right. When I came downstairs from my room to pay the hotel bill, that's when I first learned that there was a, hotel, a resort fee to be right. added to the charge. And I am convinced that a great many Americans have had the exact same experience. It is in our experience very seldom that a hotel reservationist informs you over the telephone that a resort fee must be added to the amount that you pay for the hotel. Or room. more importantly, when you're looking online, you never see that resort fee in the list it. of different hotels well, until it, you book, you know, click through. The resort fee is also not included in the advertising right. for the hotel charge that are found in various publications. And so, Pauline, a battle is now raging. And regardless of how this litigation turns out, there is a step, however, that all of us can take in order to bring about an end to the practice of resort fees. In the very first conversation that you have with a hotel reservations clerk, we could all make it a practice to ask whether a resort fee is going to be charged. And if that the hotel admits that there will be a resort fee, then you have to tell them that they must take out that resort fee and eliminate it. And if they don't do so, we will not make a, a hmm. reservation at this hotel. If more, if more and more Americans follow that practice... Uh, the and, and and claim and tell the resort the, uh, a, the agent I'm not going to stay there. Forget about it. I'm going to make another call. If another enough Americans adopt that tactic, the use of resort fees will be greatly reduced. And I, for one, hope that members of the public will stand up against this insidious practice. That's mm. the worst word I could use, which should be ended. Uh, Pauline, are you also an enemy of the so-called resort Well, case? yes, I am. And I think it's very interesting that these attorneys general, both from Washington, D.C. and Nebraska, are tackling this. We see very many fewer resort fees in Europe because the European Union has been pretty uh, strong about not allowing what is called drip Pricing. They but, call it drip pricing because it's so hard to tell when you're online what the end price will be because the, the prices come to you in drips and drops. While this is happening in Europe, the, the exact opposite situation is happening in the United right. States. The use of resort fees is now Growing. proliferating to yeah. such an extent that you, you rarely now make a reservation without being uh, subjected to a resort fee. Along with this subject... Let's talk about such websites as Yelp and TripAdvisor and what people are finding out about how they operate. We have an, a really useful article right now up on Fromers.com called, the headline is, Yelp listings are replacing restaurants' real phone numbers with fee-charging numbers. What Yelp is doing to pad its bottom line is 
it now owns um, organizations that make reservations for restaurants. And so instead of giving the public the actual phone number for the restaurant being reviewed, now they are sending people to reservations lines that charge fees for reservations so that they can make more money in that way. We're also seeing... such entities as TripAdvisor uh, charge fees to certain hotels so that they can be placed higher in the listings. These are supposed to be sites that are are totally impartial, that apparently only give the reviews of the general public. But I feel like they're they're putting their thumb on the scales with these types of strategies. What do you think of this, Dad? I, I completely agree, Polly, and I regard this as an insidious practice. This is just horrible that uh, that the these two supposedly well-reputed companies are adopting these tactics. So if you are going to be booking on Yelp, on TripAdvisor, maybe take the reviews there, although there there recently was an, uh, a segment on 60 Minutes where they did it all about a, a profile of a gentleman who makes a full living simply by pa- posting fake reviews on various websites, on TripAdvisor, on Yelp, on other websites, that on Amazon, on other websites where user reviews can really, really drive traffic. And so you have more and more of an incentive for the businesses that need these reviews to pay to have good ones listed there. Dad, you're leaning in. Were you about to say something? I was about to say that I find it just horrible that reputable companies will lend themselves in this way to this type of fraud. The the words fraud should be used, F-R-A-U-D, with respect to this type of tactic. Yeah. So that's some of the bad news in travel. Good news is the Washington Monument which, as you may remember, was opened, was closed, was closed, was opened again. It is going to be reopened by the time you hear this. Um, you know, they had some damage in 2014 because of an earthquake. And then in 2016, the elevator kept breaking down so many times that they just decided to close the whole facility until they could give people a problem-free uh, a visit to it. Well, that has finally been solved, and hopefully the Washington Monument will stay open indefinitely. Sadly, other attractions in D.C. have closed. Dad, did you ever go to the National Press Museum? It was about uh, journalism. It was I've right on the it. mall. I've never been there, Pauline. You won't be able to ever go. It yeah. closed its doors. Oh, my. Uh, just this fall, it went out of business entirely. So that's the bad news. But the good news is the Washington Monument is reopening. And the good news always continues with Washington, D.C., because so many of its top sites are absolutely free and will remain free. So whenever anybody is budgeting for a D.C. vacation... I say to them, you can spend a little bit more on hotels. You can spend a little bit more on restaurants because you're going to get to into all of the Smithsonian museums, the Smithsonian National Zoo. All of it is free. So that's something to think about when you're planning for D.C. We have to take a break right now, but we'll be right back. So don't turn that dial. There's more of the travel show coming. 
Welcome back to The Travel Show. We're going to be tackling a subject we've never tackled before, death. <laughs> death and travel. And to discuss that is Laurie Erickson, who has a fascinating, a beautiful new book, actually, called Near the Exit, Travels with the Not-So-Grim Reaper. Welcome back to The Travel Show, and congratulations on the new book, Laurie. Oh, thank you so much, Pauline. Delighted to be talking with you. So I, I, I got dramatic there. Uh, <laughs> tell our listeners uh, what the book is about in your own words. Uh-huh. So the first thing I want to tell people about my book is that it's not depressing. At least I don't think it is. No, it's not. Um, it's definitely not. Yes. So the, the catalyst for the book was actually a, um, a pairing of, of sad events in my family, my 59-year-old brother died of a heart attack the same week that my mother went into memory care in a nursing home. And I've always looked to travel for inspiration and for, you know, trying to figure out what's going on in my life. Mm -hmm. And so I got to thinking about places that that have helped me or could help me come to terms with mortality, partly as a way of dealing with my own sorrow, but also thinking that that was a, a good idea for a book, because it's not an angle that we typically think of in relation to travel. Uh, And so the book is a mixture of places far away and close to home. Far away places include Valley of the Kings in Egypt and Rome, the necropolis underneath St. Peter's Cathedral. And the close to home places include, um, there's a chapter on the nursing home where my mother lives, a chapter on graveyards, a chapter on funerals. And I try to look at all those destinations as a travel writer would, right. uh, but also as a spiritual seeker. Well, what I found so fascinating about the book is I think you'll enjoy it even if you don't want to go to any of these places because <laughs> you, you make such a, a, a wonderful guide to the history and particularly the spiritual history of these areas like well, Egypt. I have been to Egypt. I didn't know why the pyramids have the shape they do. Can you tell our listeners why they they are pyramidal? Well, the ancient Egyptians thought that Ra, the sun god, was um, was was transmitted through sun rays, and so the pyramids have their shape. It is said because they were a way of sort of concentrating the rays of of the god, and they were in a sense resurrection machines. All that energy focused on the corpse of the pharaoh that, that lie, lays at the very interior of the pyramid. Right. And so they built these massive resurrection machines, but the problem was they filled them with gold and treasures. <laughs> That's right. And so, a big mistake. Big mistake. Yes. And so then they ha- they did the Valley of, of the uh Temp, uh, the Valley of the Tombs in Luxor. And what I loved about your description of going into the innards of these places was that it was kind of not an enjoyable experience for you. <laughs> well, especially going inside one of the Great Pyramids, it's one of those sort of bucket list experiences that a lot of people think they'd want to do. But once I was actually in there, it was you know, claustrophobic and, you know, sort of filled with well-used air of thousands and thousands of other uh, people through the years. But um, but that was part of the adventure of the trip as well, you know, stretching myself and trying to experience um, destinations in a different sort of way maybe than an ordinary tourist would. Yeah, we are speaking with Laurie Erickson, who is the author of a really fun-to-read 
but very thought-provoking new book called Near the Exit, Travels with the Not-So-Grim Reaper. And you go, among other places, you go to New Zealand, but instead of bungee jumping or doing foodie things, you spend a lot of time with the Maori there and learn about their form of ancestor worship. And I, I, I thought it was fascinating how you brought this idea of the different generations and how they communicate with one another to your own life, and, and or, you know, even though you are part of the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I thought was really interesting about being in New Zealand was the realization that I had that the, the Maori way of, of looking at ancestors, of believing that the spirits of the dead live among us, is actually far more common in human history than our you know, Western contemporary notion that the dead stay dead. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I got to thinking about what that would mean in my own life. Uh, and, you know, so it led to some interesting speculations there. But I was totally fascinated and charmed by the immediacy of, with which the, the Maori relate to their ancestors. And they build this into how they live their daily lives. I mean, you had a guide who had tattoos all over his face because he had to, to show that he was part of this continuum with his ancestors. And I thought it was fascinating what he did with his grandson. Can you tell about that? Well, uh, one of the, the customs among the Maori is that the eldest grandchild in a, a family would be given to the grandparents to raise. And the idea is that at least one person then in that new generation would know the old traditions, the old stories. And so I met a, a Maori chief who was raising his grandson. He was about 14, I believe, when I, when I met him. And just a very, very impressive young man. And he was living the old ways with his grandfather. Um, so yeah, I, I also had the thought, when my oldest oldest child was was born, there was no way I would give him up to for my parents to raise. And so, you know, you don't want to take on necessarily all the aspects of another culture, but I do think there's a, a really important truth in that idea that you need to pass on the traditions to the new generation. Now, if somebody, you were there with the Society of American Travel Writers, yes. which put mm-hmm. you in touch, if somebody wanted to have a real Maori experience mm-hmm. in New Zealand, how is, easy is that for them to do, do mm-hmm. you think? Well, I would recommend that they buy my book, and in the <laughs> acknowledgments, I list the tours that I had gone on in New Zealand. Uh, Maori-owned companies that offer cultural, um, culturally-based uh, authentic tours and really contribute to um, the, the local culture. You know, they're, they're, um, you know it, they're authentic. They're, yeah. they're not outsiders coming in. Yeah. No, I, I found that when I was in New Zealand, I did a, one of those, what, it's usually hokey, but it wasn't in this case, an evening of, of dance and a big feast. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it was absolutely fascinating yeah. to, to yeah. see how the culture is surviving maybe in a performative manner at that place but but it's actually deeply felt as you say in the book 15 percent of the population is maori and now they teach classes in elementary schools in that language we have to take a break we'll be right back
You're listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And for those just tuning in on the line, we have Laurie Erickson, the author of a really delightful new book. It's called Near the Exit, Travels with the Not-So-Grim Reaper in a Nutshell. Lori had experienced some tragedy in her life with the death of her brother, and she decided to look at how other cultures deal with death and, and see what what uh, lessons she could derive from her travels. One of the places you went was Crestone, Colorado, which you say is the most spiritual place in the United States. Why? Well, somewhat of a historical accident. Um, in the 1970s, there was a, a wealthy um, philanthropist couple who made an offer that any spiritual group that wanted to come and have a center in Creston could get free land. And it was a, as a result of that, there are more than 20 different spiritual centers there, Buddhist and Christian and New Age and a wide, wide variety. But the people who live there believe that this place has always been a spiritual center for North America, and there are certainly stories, traditions going back to the native peoples of the area that indicate that as well. So Crestone is a little tiny town. It's maybe 150 people, maybe 1,000 live in the entire county, but it is a remarkable place, and thousands of people go there on retreat uh, as well. So that's the thing you would do, right? You would go there to do a retreat, but that would only get you in touch with one group. I would think. So for somebody who might not want to do that type of commitment, because usually a retreat lasts several days, mm-hmm. how would you recommend they visit it? Well, I would just drive into town. There are a few establishments there. Uh, there's a brewery there. There are a few little shops. There's a great little um, restaurant or a great little um, grocery store called Elephant Cloud there. And you, can, and you can drive around into the surrounding um, foothills and see just a real eclectic mix of structures. You can see there are ziggurats, there are meditation circles, there are um, a lot of different temples there. So you get a sense for it, even if you don't have the time to devote to a multi-day retreat. We are speaking with Lori Erickson, who is the author of a lovely new book called Near the Exit, Travels with the Not-So-Grim Reaper. You start the book out by talking about the Mexican Day of the Dead, which you experience near to you, but then you go back to Mexico to find out more about the Aztec culture. And I had no idea about this. For them, what type of underworld experience, or maybe not underworld, but afterlife experience you have doesn't depend on how you live your life. It depends on how you die. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the Aztec philosophy? Mm-hmm. So the Aztecs were fascinated by death in, in ways that are, were really problematic, and I made that clear in the book. But many of the traditions that, that we see in Day of the Dead, the Mexican traditions of Day of the Dead, actually have their roots in Aztec uh, culture. And I think the Mexicans have managed to find a way to, to bring out the best of, of that culture. So part of it is just this incredible familiarity and comfort with the idea of death, the idea that on November 1st and 2nd, the dead can come back and you feast with them, you celebrate them, you have your their favorite foods and items on their graves, and then you say goodbye to them again for another year. And that practice, more than any other, was, I think, the most influential for me in all the research that I did for the mm. book. I think it's a very healthy way 
of viewing mortality and, and relating to those who have died. Right, but back to the Aztecs. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> I got to bring you back because this uh-huh. kind of blew my mind. Uh-huh. So I think if you die, if you die in a normal way, if you die oh, of yes. a heart okay. attack or drowning, yes. You, yes. you go to this pretty lousy afterworld, right? <laughs> That's right. It's it's dark and it's yeah, it's not like hell in the Christians in you know Christian sense, but it's not a very happy place. You no. know, it's pretty pretty depressing. But if you die in battle, or if you were sacrificed on uh, as part of the rituals of the Aztec religion. Then you or if know. you die in childbirth. I thought that was yes. interesting. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Or if women dying in childbirth. Then you would go to you know, a place more like you know, the conventional view of heaven, light-filled and, and a place of, of happiness. Right. Uh, so, yeah. I've always wondered how they, they well, I mean, I guess you, you tie up human sacrifices. But uh, I guess if you have this promise, uh, more people probably did it willingly. Uh, well, I don't know. I would think it would make it a little bit easier walking up the steps of the temple, at least. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Aztec practices, you, know, you have to have a strong stomach to read about some of the things that they did. Uh, well, you and, you do it with a light hand in this book. Uh, <laughs> it's, I didn't need a strong stomach to read about it, but it was it was fascinating. You also talk about uh, an item that is often on sightseeing agendas around the world, which are cemeteries. Yeah. Um, but there are ways to go into a cemetery and understand what you are seeing, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, one of my guides on this is a special historian who specializes in Victorian death customs, and he really helped me learn how to read a cemetery as an historian or a sociologist would, would read a cemetery. So, for example, what the headstones are made of, what are the, the symbols that are on markers, uh, how um, certainly you know, during the 19th century you would have many graves in a row of children who had died, and they almost certainly had died of an epidemic of some sort. Um, the arrangement of how, how much space people are given after death, um, all of those things give important clues to the, both the life of the deceased and also the culture that they came from. Yeah, no, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And you talk about how there were craves, uh, crazes, I should say, sometimes. Oh, absolutely. That, that, that fashion really is at work in in um, graveyards as much as it is in the world of the living. So, for example, I thought it was interesting that obelisks, uh, which were very common as grave markers in the 19th century, really are connected to the rediscovery of a lot of the ancient Egyptian monuments. Yeah, yeah so, no, fascinating. So that's... Yeah. Well, we're, uh-huh. we've been speaking with Laurie Erickson. She has a terrific new book out. Get it. It's called Near the Exit, Travels with the Not-So-Grim Reaper. Thank you, Laurie. Oh, thank you so much, Polly. listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my father, Arthur Fromer, and on the line we have an old friend. He is Bryce Gosnell. He used to work with us at The Fromer Guides. Now he has a very exciting job as head of the Americas for LuxuryEscapes.com. Hey, Bryce, always so great speaking with you. 
You too, Pauline. How are you? I'm doing great. So for our listeners who have never heard of Luxury Escapes, can you tell us what the company does in a nutshell? Sure. Um, So Luxury Escapes, um, we're a flash model uh, site where we offer, we partner with luxury travel brands and negotiate packages exclusive to our members. Great thing is our membership is free. All we need is your email address. Um, And once we have that, we'll start sending you um, a daily digest of all the deals that we have. Um, they're all luxury properties, and we also offer luxury tour options as well as some experience add-ons as well. And soon you'll be doing cruises as well. So just just to tr- try and translate that, these are deals to luxury properties. So you might spend more than you would on your own but not for the type of vacation you're getting. You're getting a truly deluxe property with a lot of different add-ons. Is that fair to say? That's exactly it. So a lot of our deals, you know, right now we have about 10 European deals online. Um, I should say that most of our deals only stay up for about two weeks um, because we are a flash model. Um, They'll stay up for two weeks, and so we are always having deals fall off and new deals being added every day. That's why, um, you know, if you get the daily digest and see what's what's been added for that day. So, give us an example of, of the types of deals that you uh, that you have on the site. Sure. Well, two I'm really excited by right now. We have this. Um, um, Puglia tour to Italy, and those, for those who don't know that area of Italy, it's on, it's on the back end of the boot. Um, but this is a seven-day tour, and it's really focused around food. Um, so this area of Italy is known for um, its food. Um, so it's about seven days. You're going to be spending um, time in a, in a palace as well as a century. 17th century farmhouse um, it includes daily breakfast, gourmet lunches, and um, some dinners. Um, but we also have added airport transfers, um, private transportation, as well as uh, since it's a tour, you get some expert local guides. Right. Um, so this is about 30% off the um, listed price. Um, so it's actually a really good deal um, for, this, for this type of um, destination. Another one that um, I actually bought myself for my family because it's like this is perfect is um, we have a um, package right now to the Westin at uh, Hapuna Beach on the Big Island. The Big uh, Island the, of Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, either a five or seven night option, um, free breakfast, and that includes kids. So if you have kids under 12, um, so I bought it for two adults and two kids, um, you're, the kids are free. Wow. Um, so we just got uh, an extra bed in, in the room that we're staying in. Um, you, we also offer a three-course dinner for two. Um, and then if, if for those who golf, um, at the Hupuna Golf Course, you get some free passes to, to golf as well. So um, and how... That, and, and that, well, Sorry, go ahead. What's exciting about that one is that this kind of is like over 40%. Of so when you say it's over 40%, can I ask how much it costs? And I'm assuming that's just for the hotel. Airfare is separate. Yeah, airfare is separate. In, in the new year, we will be offering airfare as part of our packages. We just haven't launched that option in the U.S. market yet. So um, we're looking at how many nights at the Oberoi with free breakfasts, with two dinners, with free golf. Uh, anything else? Um <laughs> Well, obviously, you're, you get a, you also get a voucher, a hundred dollar or a fifty dollar voucher, or fifty to a hundred dollar voucher, depending upon how many nights you take. 
um, just to use at the resort. Oh, so that's nice. However you want. So it can be for snacks, it could be for, for cocktails, it could be for a souvenir. Um, and when you say whatever. it's when you say it's forty percent off, it's forty percent off the cost of that hotel room, or forty percent off what it would have cost you to pay for the dinners, to pay for the breakfasts, to get to do that yeah, golf. It's, it's the latter. So if you spent, if you if you got the the room yourself, and then you added on the additional cost for the daily practice, and you added on the golf. Uh, course fee, and you add it on the, the three course dinner, um, you're actually going to be spending much um, more, a lot more. Yeah, yeah. 60% so what, more. We're speaking we, with Bryce Gosnell, who is from the company luxuryescapes.com. We've got less than a minute, Bryce. Um, so you say that you send out these deals to your subscribers. How do they, you said it was free. You just go to luxuryescapes.com? Yeah, you just go to luxuryescapes.com. You can, uh, Put in your email and uh, note if you want to see, receive a daily email. You can also get one three times a week. Or you could say, you know what, I just want one once a month. Huh. Um, you let us know how often you want to receive um, notices about our deals. Um, I do encourage people to try to do it at least once a week just because we have so many new deals being added. Uh-huh. That, um, if you wait a month, you might get some fantastic offers. Right, right. Well, what I've seen on the site has been very impressive. Once again, we're talking about luxuryescapes.com. Thank you so much, Bryce, for appearing on The Travel Show. Thank you so much. And it's great to hear your voice again. Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And we often get the question, do I need travel insurance? It's a complicated issue. And the truth is, not always. If you are just going to be doing a flight, if you're driving somewhere and you're staying in a hotel, the amount you would pay for insurance wouldn't make sense because you could easily probably transfer the flight for that amount. You can cancel most hotels without paying. But there are times when you do need insurance, Dad, right? You're, you're absolutely right. And, but you obviously don't need it for a short flight where, where you're spending under $1,000. Yeah. It's, it's simply foolish to go out and get a, a, a type of uh, insurance that is cap- that is applicable only to that. Right. But if it's a big ticket item in travel, like a safari or a cruise or a long vacation that has another number of elements. I think it's smart to get insurance. You'd be crazy not to get insurance if you're going somewhere really exotic where there isn't good health care and heaven forbid you got sick and you had to be medevaced out because that's something that can cost tens of thousands of dollars. So how do you find the right policy? Well, there are these websites that are tra- uh, travel insurance marketplaces. They have names like Squaremouth, like insuremytrip.com, like travelinsurance.com. And the nice thing about these websites is they all work only with legitimate, reputable companies. And they allow you to input all of the details of your trip. 
So where you're going, what you're paying, what companies you're using, as well as your age, because your health will pay. Uh, it's insurance, after all. Your health will be a factor in this. And then they spit back a list, usually of about 30 to 40 different policies. And the fascinating thing is, usually the most expensive policy doesn't have the most coverage. Usually it's one of the policies from somewhere in the middle of the list that will do you best, uh, that will have the most things covered, uh, that will cost a reasonable amount. Uh, and you have to read these things carefully because there are certain things that insurance won't cover. Uh, for example, if a place has a terrorist attack and you're then nervous to go there, most insurance policies will not care- cover that fear of travel. You have to have a really, really good reason that you can't go. So, for example, you're going to a beach resort and the beach is washed out because of a hurricane. The reason for your trip is then a moot point because that that beach no longer exists. That usually will be covered. Other things won't be. So read everything carefully before you buy any travel insurance. Use one of these marketplaces. They really give you a good lay of the land. And be smart about it. You can't buy insurance after an event has been named. So if you're traveling during hurricane season, they announce a hurricane and you're supposed to be traveling, it's too late. We have to say goodbye for this hour. We thank you so much for listening. And And to those. wish you all a hearty bon voyage. 